You're listening to Something Real, connecting the reality of God to the realities of life. On this week's Something to Talk About, we are still in Luke chapter 22, and we're in kind of a another familiar story here with Jesus' arrest. Um, but what we are also talking about uh, is the recognition of, of our sin and knowing that God sees our sin and still gives us grace, and he gave us that, you know, through Jesus. So talking a bit about that, I thought it was a really interesting conversation. I think we could have talked a lot more too, uh, but I hope you guys enjoy the episode. Hello. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, you just told me about five minutes ago, less than that, that you have talked about this sermon frequently over the past 24 to 36 hours. Much more than normal. That's not normal for me to talk about the sermon that I just preached unless we're in a setting. So I'm but it assuming seems to have you're come have a, up in a number of conversations. So I'm assuming you're going to have a lot to say. Well, I don't know. Don't I always have a lot to say? Well, whether, that's, that's whether fair. Whether I should or not is another question. That's but fair. I, I don't seem to run out of uh, of things to say. Or if I do, it doesn't keep me from talking. That's true. But thank you for that, by the way. <laughs> I mean it in a good way. The, the more you talk, the less I have to talk. So I'm all for it. No, but um, been dealing with a lot of the questions of, of grace, uh, of uh, our sinfulness, uh, questions of, you know, have I sinned too much for God to, to forgive me, and, and folks who recognize a need for the gospel but, but have a hard time believing that, that I can be forgiven mm-hmm. for my sin. Mm-hmm. And so this idea that God's grace is at the heart of it, which, you know, for those of us who are living in the gospel, uh, in evangelical Bible teaching churches, it, it just kind of seems foreign to see it any other way. But that's not how a lot of the world, a lot of Christendom understands things. And and throughout the history of the church, that's been a real battleground, understanding the truth of God's grace. That's where, you know, we're in October, we're approaching Reformation Day on October 31st. And that was kind of the whole crux of, of the shift that took place there for Martin Luther personally, and then obviously for Western civilization and our change of understanding, is at that time the Catholic Church, the Church, because that's all there was essentially, you had the Eastern Orthodox folks, but but for the vast majority of society there was only the, the Roman Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. But the official teaching was that it was salvation was by grace, Plus your effort, so it was it was grace uh, given to you in Christ, but you had to work for that. You had to, you know, God's going to save you after all you've done, which is actually the Mormon teaching. God saves you by grace after you've done your best, uh, and then God does the rest of it. And Luther really struggled with that idea because this, you know, recognizing that God is holy. If I if I understand the holiness of God for who He is. And I recognize the sinfulness, the unholiness of myself for what it is, then I'm left with this absolute impossibility. And so Luther, like so many in the 16th century, living in, in mortal fear of death, but more specifically of the afterlife. What's going to happen when I die? Because I've spent my whole life learning that I have to be good enough. I have to earn my position with God. And I know that I don't. And I recognize innately there's something in me that tells me I can't do it. I keep trying, there's but I can't. There's nothing you can do to be good enough. Absolutely. And even if I'm, and this is what Isaiah says to Israel, <clears throat> even at your very best, if I'm if I'm absolutely killing it. Which you're not. Which we're, we're not. None <laughs> of us really are. Right. It, it, we're, none of us are really doing our best. Right. 
uh, we might think we're doing our best, but we're only comparing our best to what we perceive as less than our best, right. not according to God's standard. So if if I'm making choices to do something that is less than the best that, that I could do, then how can I possibly claim that I'm giving God my best effort? That's mm-hmm. illogical. Mm-hmm. It doesn't work. And nobody really is. But living in that constant fear created not a love of God, but it did create a hatred of sin. So so Luther and, and thousands upon thousands of others spent this life just hating sin, hating their mortality, hating their shortcomings, uh, wanting to do better, wanting to have a relationship with God that they didn't believe it was actually possible to have. So you had all these external regulations that you had to live through. And constantly living in fear, and I see this a lot now. Um, in fact, I was just talking to your sister yesterday about the the opposite side of this coin, that that it's really, I say the opposite side of the coin because it's not the opposite concept. They actually go together. The idea of legalistically trying to externally earn favor with God is kind of a, a, a hand-in-hand thing with the idea of I need to feel things. I need, you know, we have this this sweeping idea of a, I guess I would call it a sentimentalist kind of faith that that we need to feel the emotion mm-hmm. of our faith all the time for it to be valid. And that's just not biblical. See signs. Right, things. yeah. Or, or, you know, why do when I pray, why do I feel dry? Why do I right. not feel consumed by this? Why when I read the scriptures do I not feel this? When, when I'm singing in church, why does it not, you know, why am I not swept away? I'm not crying like, you know, this other person or whatever else. And that's just not reality for any experience, for anyone ever at any time. We act like it should be, but it isn't, and it's not supposed to be. And we recognize that even in romance, the you know, any 15-year-old kid can fall in love and be completely enamored, and everything is automatic, right? But we know that that's not real love, not sustaining love. It never is, it can't be, and it's not supposed to be. So at some point we need a maturity, but maturity always involves having things happen that are beyond feeling. We need to be able to recognize truth. That's very hard in our culture, especially when so much is so much about feelings are emphasized nowadays and how important they are. Absolutely, and how, how important your emotions are. And is your our life friend choices. Bruce, I was just uh, having coffee with Bruce over at Freilich's 19 North yesterday. And a little plug for for Freelix 19 North, which is a fantastically beautiful place. Anyhow, um, we're over there having... Not sponsored. Having, not yet. Let's work on that. (laughs) Come on, college. Uh, Anyway, uh, we're over there having coffee during the power outage. We had a widespread power outage here I saw that they had limited service. 14,000 people out of power. Uh, I think 1,800 people here in our our tiny little town. And... uh, Anyway, they were still there. We are having coffee. And, and we were talking about the concept of delayed gratification. And mm. we are so not interested in that in our society. Right. So anyway, coming back to how this all kind of comes together, Luther needed a different understanding. He was so consumed with trying to do something that he could not do that it created an animosity almost, a fear of God, but it went beyond a healthy understanding of God as holy, that I should rationally fear God, to a questioning of God's character. But as, you know, if God is demanding this of me and knows that I can't possibly do this, what kind of a monster is he? Right. Um, today we have what I would call the stain of the prosperity gospel running all through all of our evangelical circles, it seems, where we 
expect God to do things according to our formula. And we want to feel things. And if we don't feel it in our experience, then so often we turn away. You know, that, and people do this all the time. Well, I must not be saved because I'm not feeling it. Or it must not be true because God didn't answer my prayer the way I expected well, him to. Well, you see so many depictions of it, too. Like, I remember being a kid and, and seeing on the, you know, local television stations, they had those big uh, church events where the guy would come and touch somebody's head yeah. and they'd fall back and everyone was weeping and blah, blah, blah. Right. And you see things like that, not just that real in the real world, but in movies and in television shows and whatever. And you, you feel almost guilty when you don't have those overwhelming sure. in situations. Well, and that's, that's why I see a real struggle. And, and I'm certainly not alone in this. There are a whole, there's a whole wing of Christianity, which seems weird to say, but... Um, a lot of folks coming from a similar perspective who have real questions about the just the concept of seeker-driven churches. You know, mm-hmm. we say seeker-sensitive. I think that's the wrong term. Uh, I think Rick Warren actually identified this as seeker-driven rather than seeker-sensitive. We want to be aware that there are unbelievers among us. That's not what drives us. But this idea of of um, seeker-driven services and churches leads us to focusing on the flesh. We want to get a better atmosphere, better music. We want it to feel more like a concert. We want to have the right kind of show. We want to wear the right clothes at the right times. And you even have churches doing, you know, using light shows and, and smoke effects during during the right. worship service. Um, in some backgrounds, they're, you know, using flags and, and all sorts of different things that, that, that play on the senses. We're just trying to get the sound right. <laughs> it, yeah, it's true. Uh, and, I'm, and I'm not knocking those things innately, but we end up a lot of the time pushing ourselves uh, using marketing principles. You know, I've talked about that a lot. You coming sure, from a marketing yeah. background uh, in, in your communications in, degree. In that, you're just, you are, your goal is to make somebody feel things. That's why marketing nowadays is so driven by less let's throw advertisements in people and more yeah. let's tell stories that evoke emotion in people and then eventually you know, get them to buy our stuff. So one of the problems that we see with a lot of the you – know, I'm trying not to use the term mega churches because you know that gets to be very popular to, to use that term, and I think it's a little nebulous. We don't always know what we mean by that, but we see a lot of these big churches. So statistically, um, the number of people that are identifying as Christ followers in the U.S. is drastically declining, mm-hmm. and yet we see these mega churches, so mm-hmm. to speak, these you know really big churches, the Hillsong churches, and, and, and these different kinds of things that are just hugely growing they're packed out because for a lot of these churches it's the experience right and i'm not saying this is because you can be a big church and have great doctrine you can have a small church and have terrible doctrine so i I don't want to make that an 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 equivocacy it's not the same thing because you want a big church that's filled with people if it's teaching what it's supposed to be teaching Uh, uh, this is the second time i'm quoting rick warren but but years ago before he was real popularly known with the purpose-driven life uh, rick warren wrote a book that i thought was tremendous called the purpose-driven church and a lot of people will in the same circle that i would run will knock rick warren i think unjustly you might question his fashion choices but that's up to you he lives in california i don't but one of the things that that uh, he talked about as <clears throat> um, you know as we look at the overall thing is I'm in Orange County with Saddleback Church. Mm-hmm. We're in a highly populated, 
pretty wealthy area. You can't do what we do here in, for our example, in Three Oaks, Michigan. Right. That's, you can't duplicate it. You can't take our practices. Right. Right. But the principles are the same. And one of the things that, that he said very uh, clearly in that is big, bigger isn't better. Smaller isn't better. Better is better. Mm-hmm. Being focused on what God intends for the church and what he intends for your specific household in your specific setting, that's what makes it better. And, and that's a really important thing, I think, for us to recognize. If, if we get tons of people in here, and we've had times when we were packed out, and we've had times when we had hardly anybody. And over the last 15 years, we've seen a number of people cycle through. People that come, they get really hot, right? You're just so excited to be a part of this and then eventually fall away. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that um, that becomes pretty evident is what causes people to stay and be stable is the same thing that causes trees to grow and be stable. You've got to have a deep root system, deep and broad. So if your roots are shallow... And you have a great experience on Sunday morning, and that's the extent of it. You right. come, you, you have wonderful emotional worship, you, you, know, you have these moving prayers, and, and you're so caught up in the sermons, and, and the songs just carry you away, and that's it, yeah. then you're going to struggle. And a lot of these big churches will see that, where people come, and they're, first off, you see a lot of folks who are only engaged on, on Sunday morning or right, whatever their right, particular right. worship service is, and then they go about their business. And I think that's the case, whether you're big or small. We see that a lot. It's a dynamic that we have. Fewer and fewer who are actually engaged in meaningful, in-depth Bible study. Mm-hmm. People go to Bible study groups, but a lot of times what that means is we have a book, we're seeing what the author says. We're sitting around talking about it, drinking coffee, having snacks, and having nice fellowship. And that's a fine fellowship group, and it has its place. But it doesn't do the same thing as inductively working through the Bible, learning the scriptures, wrestling with doctrine, wrestling with the difficulty of how does the Bible teach a particular doctrine, not, not trying to make the Bible match your doctrine, right. but trying to draw your doctrine from the Bible. How do these difficult concepts work themselves out in everyday life and what do I do when life seems to fall apart how do I make this stuff work and we so often want to focus on a religion that that works that you know I I tried I tried Jesus and it didn't work for me well because it's not supposed to work for you you're talking about having a relationship with the creator of the universe that's not about what it gets you that's not about whether or not you know it it fixes all of your little problems in life it's about are you going to surrender to him as the sovereign of all things or are you not and if you do that then yes ultimately your life works better you follow the rules of the instructor and things go better for you you follow the manual of the the creator and the designer things are going to go better for you but that doesn't mean that part of that design doesn't involve struggle and suffering so i've heard that before this this uh someone close to me said this god thing isn't working Mm. and uh this god thing like (laughs) it that that doesn't uh at the time it it didn't make sense to me but now it it really doesn't make sense to me and you know i was having a conversation with um my sister the other day and you know Every, everybody's going through something mm. and um that sounds like a motivational speaker um it's true though but it's, everybody's yeah. going through something and there are times and i've i've been here plenty of times especially over this last year um where it does feel like my goodness 
I'm really struggling. And what did I do? What What did I do? Right. Is God not answering my prayers? Is God answering this person's prayers instead of mine? Right. Because it seems to be going such the opposite way of what I what I think it should be. And we do tend to look at things right. that way. You right. know, if I blow it, and, and you know, how often have we all had these thoughts of? You know, if I sin in this way, then, you know, something's going to fall We've apart We've talked in about my that life, before, right, right, too. Is God punishing me for this and yeah. this and this? Yeah. And, you know, if if I'm praying earnestly and God is not, not seemingly changing, answering my prayers, you right. Know, what's the deal? You right. Know, and I've waited so long. And, right. da, 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 you know. and, the, and all of us at some point go through that to various extents. Mm-hmm. And, and it's a hard reality. Cause we've talked about this before, too, and you, you've preached this plenty of times that, that we as Christians, are going to struggle. Yeah. The end. It's not some happy, happy, joy, joy thing all the time. Right. It's it's facing struggles. Yeah, I think where we lose it a lot of times is at the very most foundational thought. And, and I really believe this is the most foundational thought. Where we struggle is God is God, mm-hmm. I am not. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, what that idea is, is that God does not exist for us. Right. We act like he does. You know, that's, you know, people will say, well, you know, religion is something you created as a crutch for you and all that kind of stuff. Well, I, I agree with that. Religion is, in a lot of ways, it's a human creation. But God is not. Right. God does not exist for us. We exist for God. And we get that flipped. So then we start thinking things like, well, that's not working for me. This God thing, you know, Jesus, that's not really working for me. Right. I don't really believe in that. And I want to say, and, and this is not the the heart of pastoral compassion that wants to say this, but perhaps the prophetic exhorter. Who cares? (laughs) I mean, truthfully, who cares if you believe it? The only person in the entire universe who cares whether you believe it or not is you. And God, because he cares about you, but not because it impacts him, he is still God. Reality is still reality. If I, you know, I can bang my head against that wall and believe that it's not going to hurt, it's still going to hurt. I can talk myself out of it all I want. I can even, you know, convince my mind that it doesn't hurt so I keep doing it until I eventually cause brain damage and kill myself because I cannot avoid reality. Reality always works. And there is one reality. There is one reality. Nothing peeves me more than people that say, this is my reality, this is my my reality. Yeah, yeah. Like, no, homeboy, there is one reality. The ultimate umpire of all things is fact. Right. So if I jump out of a plane, I can believe that I can fly all I want, and I still go splat. That's why we, you know, when we were first talking about this podcast, we we decided our our tagline or whatever was going to be, uh, the reality of God and the realities of life, because yeah. there is one reality, God's right. reality. <laughs> and we want, to, we want to be able to help people see how the scriptures connect with that. How does the word of God connect with my experience every day? I think we should get into the scripture where we talked about this. Well, week. I think we are actually doing the concept of, of what we're talking about. I don't mean to put us off about. on a tangent. Uh, because we can't, really, we can't really grasp what the scripture is saying if we don't wrestle with right. the thoughts. And we can't grasp the thoughts, ultimately, if we don't get back to the scriptures. So I, I think that's where we run into this struggle, is so often in the history of the church, and, and I, my mind wants to say really heavily in the 20th century, but I don't think that's true. I think it's always been the case. I think we see that even in the New Testament itself, Paul is addressing the fact that people aren't connecting the dots between the reality of God and the realities of life. And so as we do that, 
we have been guilty far too often in the church of going through rote memorization, uh, ritualistic comfort food, where we, you know, we uh, quote the Apostles' Creed or, or read uh, various scriptures over and over again. And everybody, every funeral you go to, everybody knows the, you know, the twenty-third Psalm, every right? wedding, the Lord's Prayer. Right. And we haven't connected with it. We haven't actually looked at what does that mean? What does Jesus mean when he tells us to pray this way? That's why when I, I went to a Catholic college and you go, I, I had to go to services in the choir yeah. and every service is the same. Yeah. And and uh, somebody told my mom once, she tells us that you can go, that's the beauty of the Catholic church is that you can go to any Catholic church in the world and you know what you're getting every that's true. time. But but is that the beauty of it? <laughs> From a religious perspective, it kind of is because it is comforting. And I think that, you know, even among people who, and I see this all the time now where people are like, you know, I'm, I'm coming back to God. You know, I've been away from it. I was turned off by church. So when I come to real life, well, that's not how it was when I was in church. Right, you know, right, I'm really right. looking some, for something more like I, when I was in church. And growing up, I get up, that. That's comfort. Because comforting. we want comfort, right? right. When right. I when I was you want coming, the chicken pot pie of churches. <laughs> when we moved back to this area, and I'm looking for churches to attend, or wherever we went, we moved around the country in the Air Force, you know, looking for churches to attend. Innately, it was just the the default was I was in my mind I was consciously looking for one thing, but what I was ultimately looking for was what I was used to, what I was right. comfortable with. Right. Well, and when Jesus through the Gospels here, and this is why he's going to the cross. Not it's not ultimately why he's going to the cross, but it's why they think they're sending him to the cross. Mm. He's upsetting all of that comfort. We're used to doing things a certain way. We have certain uh, formats that that are in place. We have even your daily power routine. Structures. You don't like it when your routine gets disrupted. Like Absolutely yesterday, not. the power went out. Yeah, I was so uncomfortable. I it hated. It was hard for me to remember that, right. that today is Tuesday. Right. You know, because right. right. everything was off a right. little bit. And and so Jesus in bringing the true gospel, the good news that God's kingdom is coming and he actually wants us to be a part of it, um, brings things that are sometimes uncomfortable and hard for people to hear. And it upsets that comfortable religion. But comfortable religion doesn't save anyone. Mm -hmm. It might make you comfortable, might make you feel better, but it doesn't save anyone. Truth saves people. So when Jesus speaks to, you know, in the Last Supper in Luke 22, when he speaks to his disciples and he says, the betrayer's at the table with me. And he tells uh, Peter, he says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat, but I've prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned back, strengthen your brothers. That's verse 31 and 32. And then Peter's response is, Lord, what? Are you, you kidding me? You don't need to pray for me. <laughs> I, even if everybody else falls away, right. I'm, I'm ready. I'm going to, to prison or death with you, whatever it takes. And Jesus speaks the uncomfortable truth to him. I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you'll deny me three times. You'll deny three times that you know me. And then he speaks to them and, and says, look, when I sent you out before without sandals or purse and no preparation, it was easy. You didn't have that opposition. It's not going to be that anymore. It's going to be hard now. And so Jesus does not ever avoid the difficulty. There's a of reality. Truth, of truth. He brings that truth. Whether you want the truth or not, right. you need the truth. And so as we were looking through this, and this is, I guess, why it kept coming up in conversation in the last 24 hours or so, is this reality that God's love for us sees our sin. When he... Uh, when he is dealing with Peter, he's 
letting himself be arrested. He, he said in another, in another gospel that I could just ask the Father and he would send more than 12 legions of angels to rescue me from this. What good are the Sanhedrin's, the temple guard, going to do for us here? They can't stop me from doing what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. But Jesus lets himself be taken. He gives himself up for Peter, knowing Peter's denial, telling him this ahead of time, watching it happen. And it's significant that as it happens, as soon as the, the rooster crows, Jesus, according to Luke's account here, looks right at Peter. There's, there's an eye contact here. Peter, I know you. I know the sin. It's just what I told you. But I'm still going. I'm still going to do this. I'm still going to die in your place. I'm still going to rise from the dead. I'm still going to ascend to heaven. I'm still going to be the king of everything. I'm still going to return. I'm still going to claim my bride as my own, despite the fact that every single one of us not only has sinned, but we all continue to sin. Mm -hmm. When John writes his, his first of three letters in the back of the New Testament, he's writing to give us assurance. And he says, I'm writing this so that you might not sin. But if anyone does sin, he, he uses if, but it could be saying when, because it's really, it's assumed. Paul calls himself the chief of sinners and a wretched man, even as he's writing scripture. But John, as he does this, is if anybody does sin, we have an advocate. It's Christ. Right. Well, when we sin, who do we sin against? We sin against Christ, and yet he is our advocate. He is stepping up for us. God's love for us sees our sin. Therefore, in light of that, our love for him must see his grace. I mentioned Luther earlier. Luther understood God's holiness. He understood sin. He hated sin. He didn't want that. He didn't understand grace. Therefore, he didn't love God. He feared God. At times, he may have even hated God. But he absolutely recognized, God is God, I am not. But he didn't see God as loving, as gracious. Paul writes in Romans 2 that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. It's, it's God's mercy that saves us in Titus 3.5. It's not because we deserve it. It's not by any righteousness in us that he saves us. Or anything us. we can do. Can't. Nothing. Not any tiny thing. No work of righteousness that we can bring about. We can't get baptized and impress God. We can't take communion and get impressed impress God. You can't feed the homeless. You can't do that. Nope. Not to say you shouldn't do those things. Can't write big but, checks to the church. Right, right. and all that. None of that is going to save us. It's not for any works of righteousness that we have done, but according to his mercy. His mercy is 100% giving us, not giving us what we deserve. Right. Grace is giving us what we don't deserve. Mercy is not giving us what we do deserve. We deserve death. He's not giving that to us because Christ is taking that on himself. So that makes God both just, mm -hmm. he's not giving us a pass, but he also is the justifier. He's the one who justifies us by taking that punishment upon himself. And so God's love for God's love for us sees our sin. So our love for him must see his grace. And when we get that, then then we don't have to worry about whether we've outsinned his his love, whether we've outsinned his grace, because if it is deserved, it isn't grace to begin with. If it, if there were anything like that, the Bible wouldn't spend so much time talking about God's grace to us. It wouldn't talk about you know the fact that the wages of sin is death, mm -hmm. but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. And I think another thing, and I've struggled with this, and I know I don't mean to call my mom out, but um, there's there's 
there is that fear sometimes where, oh, I've done too much. I've, I've sinned too much. Absolutely. But we I hear that all the time. But I think, and maybe I'm wrong here. Please correct me if I'm wrong. You mentioned this on Sunday, I believe. Even atheists or non-believers or whoever, a lot of people have just this, I'll call it a moral compass for lack of a better word. Sure. You know when you're doing something wrong. Right. You feel that. It, it doesn't take a whole lot. Right. Because the, in God's common grace to all of us, he has built a conscience into us to whatever extent. Because we bear his image, right. we have a conscience. Uh, some have said we don't, it's only the Holy Spirit. I've actually said that myself in the past. Uh, I don't think that's actually scriptural. Because we're created in God's image, the nature of God in us, however corrupted by sin, has in some sense, a conscience to know the difference between right and wrong. Sin has corrupted that, so we see it wrongly. But we ultimately have to talk ourselves out of right, God. Right. There, nobody is born an atheist. We see right. life, and logic tells us when we see intelligent design, there must be behind it an intelligent designer. Mm -hmm. I, I think I mentioned in the last podcast, we were down at Turkey Run mm -hmm. on Columbus Day. And you're seeing all these incredible rock formations. And they have some signs explaining it, and I'm like... You know, when I look at it and I see the scientific evidence, I see God. There's no way for me to not see that this can't be random chance, even as I'm looking at some places where somebody has scribbled some graffiti or that you're walking along and there's a bench in the middle of the path. That didn't happen by random chance. There is a design to it. Well, all of the complexity of nature is so much more detailed than a bench by a path right. or some scribbled words on a wall or on a rock. But we assume, we see this and we assume that there's a designer. We see somebody's initials in a tree. I just saw that in Warren Woods the other day. Some, Cute. Some, some, and some were pretty amazing. <laughs> you see initials in a tree that somebody carved with a knife and we think, right. well, that must have been done by an intelligent person who chose to do it. Right. And yet we look at the, the intricacies of how this entire and we think, forest primeval Totally exists. random. Yeah. So we have to talk ourselves Something out of Something exploded and all this happened. And, and the sin nature does that. The mm -hmm. sin nature blinds us. It darkens our intellect. It corrupts our senses so that our conscience doesn't see right and wrong accurately. But, I'm but the thing of it is, even in the most God-hating person... There is an impulse right. for that, right. to see right and wrong. So somebody, and this is where the atheists have a real struggle, how do I say that something is good or bad if there is no God, if there's no external If there's standard? no litmus for what is right. good or bad, then what if, am I... If it's all random chance, right. natural selection, in the animal kingdom, there is no good or bad. We don't look at a, a you know, how... Uh, it's our depictions of it. We see a snake and we think, ooh, sure. bad. We, we put see it, we a, put it, a it, But those are all things say, that right. come from human minds. Right, right. When we recognize a fox you know, catching a rabbit in nature, that's the way these things go, right? I don't but, like to see it. No, I don't like to see it either. <laughs> but, but we don't think, oh, right. that fox is evil. evil right. That fox is a predator. That fox is hungry. Right. That's how it works. And if the fox doesn't catch a rabbit at some point, the rabbits get overpopulated, the fox goes hungry and dies, right. it's all, all these kinds of things. But... When if we I talk stop about, eating pizza, the pizza population is not going to go up. When we talk about humankind, yeah. we look at things and we say, you know, if you kill another human being, that's that's bad. If right. you if you steal from another human being, that's bad. That's Whether you evil. believe in God that's, or not? That's morally wrong. Right. We don't look at the animal kingdom and say the same thing. Right. But we want to apply the same rules in any other way. Right. So the atheist has a problem. If there isn't an objective external standard, then how does that work? Well, we say, well, it's for the social good. What's for the common good? 
but you're not applying that to anyone else. Right. The the common good, according to the evolutionist, is natural selection. Right. You know, Survival when, when of we, the fittest. We weed out the weak, the strong survive, we, the, the fittest procreate. So if you're going so by we, that, if, if I'm weaker than you and you kill me, well, so be it. The highest moral good right. is for me to take your stuff, right. make it my stuff, wipe you out, right. and the strong survive. Right. That doesn't work for us, though. We know that. Right. Because innately in us, in the image of God built into every human being, is a conscience, an awareness of right and wrong because the nature of God is built into us. Corrupted by sin, that's what separates us from God, and we need a Savior to rescue us. Jesus sees that in us, knows that, and while knowing that, chooses to go to the cross. He runs to our sin, not from our sin. I think we should stop there. We were a little ranty today, but I liked it. (laughs) Uh, I feel like we talked a lot about a lot lot more too, but... uh... I enjoyed that conversation. Thank you. Um, As always, if you guys have any questions, because I feel like this is a really converse-heavy topic. Mm. Um, Words are hard for me right now, (laughs) which is good for a podcast. Uh, If you guys have any questions, feel free to uh, send them our way on Facebook, uh, email somethingreal at reallifeonline.org, or send a voicemail. I think last time we actually said at Real Life. Uh, at reallife.org. I'm oh, I'm sure. sorry. Yeah, but Not you bad. got it right in the text Real life anyway. Reallifeonline.org, yes. So it is reallifeonline.org. Words are very difficult. Words. Um, or leave a voicemail. There's only a few more weeks for me to plug voicemail because I'm not doing it next year. <laughs> That's what she says. Anyway, thank you guys for listening and we'll catch you next time.